0: Carson Sistoole. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance on a Tuesday. It's his weekly Monday appearance, except owing to the July 4th celebration, it occurs on a Tuesday as the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest on the program, and as he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball. Of particular note, the San Diego Padres were very active on July 2nd, and the days immediately following July 2nd, international free agency. Not surprising, given that their GM was known for his involvement in signing international free agents, while with the Texas Rangers. While it certainly can't hurt the Padres to have a number of top international prospects, Padres' flurry of activity on the July 2nd date might represent the organization's attempt to solve a problem that did not need immediate fixing. Cameron and I discussed that with the start of July we entered the last month during which teams are permitted to make trades without first passing players through waivers. I asked Cameron about the Yankees' triumvirate of excellent bullpen arms, the probability that any of the three, or all of the three, will be traded. Cameron also discusses why Jonas Lufoy to the Boston Red Sox would make sense because the Red Sox offense is already so good. Lastly, and probably leastly, Dave Cameron explains the concept of diminishing returns to the host of this program as if he, which is to say as if I, were a child.
1: The return you get or the happiness or the utility you get from the first slice of pizza is often quite high. And if you're a college student, probably the same as like the second and third slice of pizza. At those points, like it's all just terrific. But then you get to like the fourth or fifth or sixth slice of pizza and it is significantly less good for you (laughs) and less enjoyable.
0: That moment of condescension and others just like it in What's to Follow... What's following even more immediately, however, is a message from the sponsor. The sponsor is SeatGeek, seatgeek SeatGeek.com. You're probably aware, listener, how purchasing tickets to sports and concert events is a process marked most immediately by a combination of work and hassle. SeatGeek endeavors to eliminate both from that same ticket-buying process. What they do is to pull tickets available at other sites, aggregate them, as it were, into one place, which facilitates for you the best deal possible. Even better, what they do is to put a grade on every ticket, which is an expression of that ticket's value. So it's possible for you, looking for tickets, to able to exploit the inefficiencies in the ticket-buying market. And finally, allow me briefly to speak to SeatGeek's ethical conduct. What they don't do is to assess mysterious fees at any point along the transaction, from the beginning to the end. And so unlike other sites, for example, StubHub, SeatGeek shows you the full ticket price from the start to the finish. For those who have endured this introduction thus far, you are treated to a rebate, a $20 rebate, courtesy of SeatGeek. Here's how you claim it. You download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code. You enter the promo code Fangraphs, that's F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter the promo code Fangraphs today. your nearest possible convenience which we have now concluded almost all of the introduction. Let's turn to a conversation with Dave Cameron. What is it? It is Fangraph's audio. Who does it feature that same managing editor? Dave Cameron. When does it begin? Right now.
1: Thank you. That's uh, unusual for you to say. Yeah, it is. Well, I mean,
0: I feel as though the audio equipment is capturing your voice and representing it accurately.
1: <laughs> that's uh, a good way to walk back your compliment.
0: Yeah, well, that's what I meant. Okay. It's not what I said. It's what I meant, though. Yeah. That happens a lot, doesn't it? In it Just does. in life, people yeah. uh, intentionally and unintentionally, they will say something that they don't entirely mean.
1: Yeah, I've done that many, many times. Mm -hmm. It's it's a consequence of being human, I think.
0: It is, yeah, and it's also the the vagaries of the language. It's difficult sometimes to be entirely precise.
1: Yeah, I don't know if I want to blame it on the language. I mean, it would be nice if we could just be like, ah, it's the language's fault, but I think it's generally just us, right? We're lazy and we don't communicate well.
0: Yeah, right. So it's so it's the language. It's how difficult the language is, I guess. So all the in theory, like all the raw materials there for us to express ourselves clearly. I I, re, I very much enjoy listening to, and I'm not among this population at all, uh, listening to extraordinarily articulate people, people who seem to have access to all of the extant words and the um, and exhibit some skill in putting them together.
1: Who who would you use as an example of a very articulate speaker?
0: Mm, mostly British people. <laughs> <laughs> Just mostly mostly British people. It happens. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that um, Boris Johnson guy seems quite articulate.
0: Not Boris Johnson, but I will say so. Among famous people, for example, uh, star of Sherlock and other uh, movies, Benedict Cumberbatch.
1: Yeah. Have you ever heard him try to say the word penguin? Oh no! Is it, does it work this out? Is, this is actually one of my favorite things on the internet. Is uh you can go to YouTube and uh, type in Benedict Cumberbatch penguin, mm-hmm. and the, like he not he narrated a documentary about penguins, but he doesn't know how to say the word. So it's like you hear like 15 different attempts at the word penguin. Most of them sound more like pen wing like he just adds the g at the end for some reason <laughs> but like throughout the entire documentary they cut it in you you will hear every version of the word penguin except for the correct one i would like to hear that it's really funny
0: i'm uh, making a note making a note now yeah. that has to wait though uh, the thing we do every week uh, of late at least to uh, to begin the program is to embark on something that we call practical analytics
1: yeah we which do. is
0: which is to uh, to take some of the wisdom, some of the strategies we use in analyzing baseball, and apply them to real life so that this program isn't rendered entirely
1: useless. <laughs> well, I think it still is that, but we can attempt to make it less useless.
0: Yeah, we can make it less useless, right. So we're using skills as critical skills and this sort of thing. Uh, today, I would like to ask you, Dave Cameron, about decision-making, and I have two uh, anecdotes that I think begin to point at what I mean, uh, well, probably not, but I think they do. Uh, the first involves a TED Talk that I saw, I watched maybe 10 years ago by a professor and sociologist, maybe psychologist, named Barry Schwartz. Okay. Wrote a book called The Paradox of Choice, in which, the TED Talk at least, in which he relates an anecdote about buying jeans. He says buying jeans never used to be a problem, uh, but in uh, recent years, instead of just the old regular pair of jeans he bought, uh, he would now go to the department store wherever he buys them and there would be, you know, essentially like 40 models of jean.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, there's the slim cut and boot cut.
1: Too many uh, choices.
0: Exactly, yeah, various finishes and colors. And he says that what he found was that he was actually less happy buying his jeans because there were so many more options, he felt there was more burden placed on him to make the right decision.
1: That's right. It was like less curated,
0: right? Exactly right. So And so the thing was, before when maybe he – like the actual jeans weren't as good, right? Because they were the only choice. He's like, well,
1: I guess these are jeans. Yeah, he <laughs> but, ignorance of knowing there was anything better.
0: Exactly right. But now, uh, but now, because the the burden is on him to make a choice when he's not entirely satisfied by his purchase, he takes on the burden of that disappointment. It's his fault and not the not jeans' fault.
1: Yeah, they uh, they've exposed his ignorance of the denim market. Right, and.
0: Honestly, it's probably okay to go through life without a great, a great deal of wisdom about the denim market, If you yeah. know, especially if you're a sociologist or whatever.
1: Uh, right, or any kind of person listening to this podcast, most likely.
0: Oh, yes. I've seen some of their faces. Yeah. And,
1: uh, and their genes.
0: And their genes. <laughs> and neither can be improved upon that much. <laughs>
1: uh, the second thing it
0: concerns uh, some recent efforts uh, for, um, for me in the direction of gardening, Okay, I've recently started to – I've recently planted some seeds and also some seedlings into some raised beds in the back. And here's the, here's here's what I have to do. I've never done – I've never tried gardening at all before, and I'm doing I'm, – I haven't killed everything yet, so it's going about as well as I could have expected. Here's what I want to say, though, and it, again, it goes into the amount of information, uh, essentially, uh, that one can gather before making decision. I went to you know I read online a little bit. I got maybe one or two guides to gardening. Um, and I find that while I'm following most of the suggestions given to me, some of the details are just beyond me because I have no practical experience. Some of these suggestions are just uh, sort of beyond me. And when I, I look at you know should I use what should I use for a mulch? Should I use wood chips or should I use straw? I don't really care, honestly because I, <laughs> I have not been able to observe the differences between the two. Straw or uh, yes, yeah, straw just happened to be available at the garden center outside, yeah.
1: and so I chose right. straw. That is a good way to make a decision. So
0: I'm not sure it is a good way to make a decision. But what I realized was, if I did any more research into it, the the whole prospect of gardening would have become a, would have become a burden at that point. Whereas I just wanted it to be something that I'm doing, I'm willing to dedicate X number of minutes to it, but X plus one or X plus fifty, et cetera – would actually make the whole thing burdensome. So I said, here's the cutoff point. So here's so so taking off from both of the Zantos, I guess, is there anything in economics or any of the uh, behavioral sciences with which you're familiar, uh, is, there, is there any language, are there any sort of principles to describe this relationship between the gathering of information, the performance of due diligence, leading up to the choice, and maybe the point at which due diligence... There, there, in fact, there could be an excess of it, so that the the choice itself, you know, becomes made more difficult by the by the abundance of information.
1: Yeah, I mean, so there's probably a better way to describe what you're talking about. I think maybe the simplest way would be to describe it essentially as like diminishing returns, right? Mm-hmm. So what you're essentially arguing for, especially in the genes example, is that there are uh, diminishing returns on uh, more additional available options to the buyer and so because he has uh, a larger quantity of options actually makes him worse off and uh, makes him feel, you know, inadequate or <laughs> uh, uninformed in some way to where if he only had one or two options, uh, he would feel uh, you know, like there were there were uh, there was a better chance of him making the correct choice or making a choice anyway. Right. Um. So if you look at it from the diminishing returns perspective, you would say each additional marginal pair of jeans, or in your case, information about gardening, or you know, and anything else in the world. Um. You could have, uh, a, not only a less positive return than the first one, but you could end up having a negative return. I think in, uh, in college, my econ professors would often use this with like slices of pizza because college <laughs> students often like pizza. Uh, and so like the, the return you get or the happiness or the utility you get from the first slice of pizza is often quite high. And if you're a college student, probably the same at like the second and third slice of pizza. At those points, like it's all just terrific. But then you get to like the fourth or fifth or six slice of pizza, and it is significantly less good for you <laughs> and less filling and less, uh, I don't know, enjoyable. <laughs> and then when, at some point, like that becomes a, a pizza-eating contest. And then you're Joey Chestnut, and you're trying to have, like, 15 slices of pizza. Then each piece of pizza becomes laborious and, uh, and a, a challenge to get through. So there's um, significant diminishing returns, and there are cases where you can have too much of a good thing, and it can actually – be better for you to have fewer options.
0: Here's a here's a, a lazy, uninformed comment that I have to make about that. Is I feel as though uh, people whom I would regard as otherwise quite intelligent, um, and also people who I wouldn't regard as intelligent, uh, do not necessarily always integrate this concept of diminishing returns um, into their. Um, into their daily lives or their this awareness of demitian turns into their daily lives even if uh, they're high functioning adults in in other ways
1: yeah i mean i think it's it's pretty normal uh, to look at you know an item and say this item has value x uh, outside of context right and and say you know if i have one of these things or 10 of these things or 50 of these things it doesn't really matter because this thing has value x and not to segue away from practical analytics too quickly but i actually wrote about a similar concept today, uh, or yesterday for people listening to the podcast, I guess, with the Red Sox and Jonathan Lucroy, where people would look at it and say, uh, you know, Jonathan Lucroy is worth X number of runs to every single team, but because of the context of the Red Sox lineup, he might actually be more valuable to them. And so I think people including myself, uh, do struggle to see how context can affect the value of a player or yeah, and, a thing.
0: I, and actually, I do want to talk about the, the Red Sox slash Lucroy example momentarily. Just one other thing, and this also is uh, – um, I, I think there is something here that probably makes sense in the context of the sport of baseball as well. Um, and, uh, you talk about diminishing returns, and I assume that at some point, say in particular, if you are signing – if you're looking at signing a free agent – this might bleed over into opportunity costs as well, yeah? Because if you're performing some sort of due diligence on one free agent but it's preventing you from examining other free agents, then uh, essentially um, what you've done – because there's a finite time, of course, that you have right. to do all this – is that um, there must be a certain – you have to say as an organization, there is a certain cutoff point at which this these are the things we know and whatever work we're doing, gathering information now, uh, there's – it's uh, it's not helping us – it's not It's not going to add as much value um, as, you know, as we have up till this point.
1: Yeah, and I think this is actually a, a pretty interesting topic of discussion in terms of scouting, right, and how you deploy your scouts. Uh, so some organizations are going to, you know, blanket the country uh, and say, okay, we're going to give a scout an area uh, or his region will be like the entire southeast, right? So that's like North and South Carolina and Georgia and Florida and Alabama and Mississippi. And so he's going to be given like this monstrous area to cover – in which there's no way he can see all of the talented baseball players in that area multiple times. He's gonna to have to just, you know, hustle across the state for, you know, 360 days a year in order to try and just kinda of get a look at everybody and be able to provide a shallow, you know, basic report on what he saw the one or two times he saw each player. Other organizations are gonna do, you know, much more specific where you take a couple of scouts and say, look, we're going to split up, you know, the, the region into smaller areas or potentially it will even go by organization. So you're going to have uh, – you'll just have, like, the National League West teams instead of, uh, you know, a certain geographic area. So there's different ways to kind of assign your scouts. And, and I think you can look at it and say, is it more valuable to cover one area in a lot of depth, know everything about every single prospect in that area, and then really focus on, you know, kind of the depth of knowledge of those specific prospects while recognizing that you're going to miss out on players from other areas? Uh, or is it better to kind of know a little bit about everybody? And I think this is something that isn't necessarily, um, uh, there's not a consensus to say that it's definitely better to scout one area or one, you know, type of area or um, in, in extreme depth versus just kind of blanketing everything, but I, I would, uh, not be surprised to learn that being, uh, really good at something, like in your case gardening, like maybe you could not learn about, uh, I don't know, mowing the yard the most effective way or, or how planting. about uh, any, uh, how about peas? I do not want to grow peas. Right. So you can be completely ignorant when it comes to peas, but I don't know. What what do you want to grow? Hipster t-shirts?
0: No, I want to grow. Uh, uh, say, I want to grow tomatoes.
1: Okay, so right, maybe it's more valuable for you to learn specifically about the best mulch for just tomatoes, assuming yeah. it's different than any, any other plant and peas. And uh, well, then peas, it peas is. Well, peas you
0: have to grow. You have to have a trellis, and I don't want to build a trellis. A trellis? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: That doesn't seem like something you're capable of building.
0: No, it doesn't. Right. Yeah. So I got to steer
1: clear. Yeah. So I think that's the question is like are there diminishing returns on knowledge of depth of players or or is there increasing returns? We don't actually know where diminishing returns necessarily kick in, except for, you know, with like the seventh slice of pizza we can be pretty confident there.
0: That will make you um it will do not it will not diminish the returns on your BMI. Yeah, that was true. We'll yeah. that's true. If that's your increase. goal
1: is to like increase your BMI, well, then pizza is probably not actually a great choice. You should uh, just go straight for like the chocolate or some kind of uh, very high calorie uh, food that doesn't fill you up at all. Oh, Yeah. Okay. Hey. Um,
0: oh yes, we were talking about uh, how, how essentially how to allocate scouts in one way. The uh, July second um, was recently, and that it marks the beginning of the 2015. The 2016-2017 international free agent signing period. I have I seem to remember that there are certain teams that basically signed zero players internationally because again, it's a question of allocating allocating resources, allocating scouts. Is that true?
1: Well, I don't think anybody signs no players, but there are certainly some organizations that are uh, significantly less aggressive and and certainly aren't going to be playing in the top end of the market. So they'll maybe uh, be more likely to just kind of. Sign, a a a low number of kind of mid-level guys and, and hope to get lucky. I think, uh, before they hired, uh, AJ Preller, the Padres were one of these teams who basically did nothing internationally, mm-hmm. and that was one of the reasons they hired Preller, is because they really wanted to make a splash in the international signing market and, and kind of reverse the trend of, of that being a, a, a resource that they were ignoring.
0: Okay, so, uh, on the topic of AJ Preller, I'd like to, I'd like to ask you about this. We, we've maybe addressed this in earlier weeks. Uh, so yes. The obviously Prowler's management, and these are not all his decisions, but he is at some level the face of um, you know player acquisitions uh his his the way he has conducted the affairs of the Padres at the major league level has not been a great success they yeah, have they've, they've and, been pretty bad right and you know it that's sort of it's embodied probably most expediently uh by the Matt Kemp move right
1: yeah uh, that, yeah the Matt Kemp trade was the biggest disaster of the disastrous moves they've made
0: because i'm i'm sure that Yasmani Grandal alone has has produced more wins at for less money than Kemp yeah
1: yeah, I mean, Grandal is not having a very good 2016 season, but mm-hmm. just not having Matt Kemp around would have been useful because I think Kemp's been a below replacement level player yeah. since coming to San Diego, and he's making so they're paying him like 18 million a year even after the Dodger subsidy.
0: Right, and then uh, it, things things went off the rails in other ways as well uh for the Padres, and some of which you know was uh, normal injury related things, regression, uh, and then but then quite a bit of it was uh, uh Preller going all in. With a strategy that did not suggest that going all in would not lead to many wins. Right, premature attempt at contention. Here's the thing: if the Padres' intention, if ownership's intention, uh, was to was to um, play a bigger role in the international market, yeah. and given the signs, I, uh, I I remember so from Eric Longenhagen's sortable board. I think what six or seven of the top ten or eleven. Yeah. Uh, international free agent prospects, were, were scheduled to go to the Padres.
1: Yeah, and did. I think they signed a bunch of them over the weekend.
0: Right, okay. <laughs> uh, why would you necessarily hire Preller as your general manager? Why wouldn't you hire him as the head of international scouting or something like this?
1: Well, the Rangers wouldn't have let him leave for a lateral move. I think we've talked about this on the podcast before. Yeah, sure. yeah. Like uh, You can only really poach people from other organizations if you're giving them uh, promotions. Uh, otherwise, they will just keep their employees. And so to get Preller out of Texas, they had to give him a promotion.
0: Okay this seems to be the sort of obsession we've or, or maybe you could tell me how it's different than this you know uh what during the the latter years of the the Jack Zerench uh, era yeah. in Seattle there was this sort of obsession with right-handed power bats
1: yeah. uh-huh
0: right and in this is and it's not not merely the Mariners though uh you know we've seen this other thing where a team says we need a left-handed pitcher right. uh, you know we need a closer you see sort yeah. of you begin to see an obsession do you think, is there any evidence that Padre's ownership or um, some, some, you know, some, at some executive level that they decided that they needed to have an influx of international talent?
1: Yeah, I mean I think it's uh most generally uh related to trying to avoid criticism, right? So like I think we've seen this historically in every part of baseball is where some organization gets uh you know, either it's players on the field or or how they operate gets criticized for a weakness and they then act to solidify that weakness even if it's not necessarily the best way forward for their overall plan. So you like say, okay, um, we need this specific thing. We don't have a second baseman or we don't like the catcher we have or we have deficiency in starting pitching. Um, we look at uh the best way to improve that one weakness rather than saying how do we make our team best off overall. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess it goes back to the Luke Roy article I wrote. It's like the Red Sox very clearly need a, a starting pitcher or two or three <laughs> even. Uh, but there aren't any starting pitchers available no. right now or there's not any good ones. Very few good ones anyway, and the price for them is going to be exorbitant. So if the Red Sox pigeonholed themselves and said, look, the only thing we can do is trade for a starting pitcher, they're going to be playing in a very shallow pool with a whole bunch of other bidders, and potentially could set themselves up to make a very bad trade. Where if they trade for Jonathan Lucroy, they might be the only contender who's really willing to go out and pay a, you know, a significant price for the best catcher on the market. And they might get a bigger upgrade overall, even by leaving their weakest spot weak. And so in the Padres' case, Yes, they had a a long history of being very poor internationally, and they hired a general manager mostly because of his reputation for uh, signing high-level international talents. It is questionable whether they did their overall organization a disservice, though, if they would not have been better off saying, okay, this is something we need to build up. And you know improve upon, but more importantly, it's it's wise to have an executive who values players properly and is not going to make you know a series of really big mistakes at the big league level. Uh, you know I think you can essentially cut off your nose to spite your face, and and the Padres may have done that in trying to fix their international issues.
0: Who who's in the mar? Who's in the business of attempting to spite
1: their own face? Uh, that's a good question. I don't even know how you would do that. Right. It's it's weird.
0: Yeah, it's a weird frame of mind to, to feel as though to feel animosity towards your face. Well,
1: well I, mean, yeah. I, I mean, I've felt that towards your face before.
0: Ah, okay. Hey, I have a question for you. This is a horribly open-ended, leading nowhere. How do you, Cameron? How do you essentially digest the the, the you know announcements regarding international free agent signings? Uh. Uh, cause it's a, it's a, just a collection of sixteen-year-old. Right. Six-year-olders and their names, essentially. That's,
1: that's- yeah, I, I think this gets kind of back to your original question in the practical analytics of like, at what point do we just say, additional information is not going to be useful to me, right? Like, so I could read every scouting report on every sixteen-year-old who signed and tried to have an opinion about those guys and who they signed, but I, I don't know that there would actually be an increasing return on the level of information I got until I, you know, until we reached a point at which, like, Public, not publicly available information was received, so like. I think what we generally end up doing is kind of what your jeans guy wanted, right? He just wanted someone to curate the available jeans for him and be like, these are the jeans you should buy, sir. These are your only options. This is kind of the Costco me- method of things. <laughs> to get back to another practical analytics question, Costco would be like, this is the ketchup we sell. Or this is, like, these are the, you know, whatever, oatmeal, uh, packets of oatmeal. They don't have, like, 75 choices. They just tell you, like, if you want one, this is the one we have, and you can you can take it or leave it. And so I think... With international signings, I just look at like you know Eric Longenhagen or Ben Badler or Jesse Sanchez, these guys who do this for a living, and trust them to tell me the truth. <laughs> and, and if they're lying to me or if they're mistaken, then I'm screwed. But that's probably a better use of my time than me trying to figure it out myself.
0: You know, uh, the most uh, on, on his most recent appearance, what Eric and I did was because. It, be- I think probably much like you. To me, it's just a list of names when I see them. Yeah. And, of course, you know the likelihood that um, they'll, they'll mean anything to me in the next two or three years is very low. What we did was we went and we looked back at the top ten bonuses from 2011 for international free agents.
1: How many of those were, like, relevant prospects this year? So – Decent amount,
0: actually. Okay. Um. And I don't know. And in and, and maybe in further episode, I'll get I'll talk with Eric about whether that was a you know a An particularly good year. Yeah, yeah. Right. So Nomar Mazzara was signed five years ago. Sure. Uh. And he received the highest bonus. Also, um, R- Roberto Asuna was from yeah. that same class. And those those were the two best guys. There were a couple other guys scattered through it. There's um, Ronald Guzman is in the Rangers system. Right. He's particularly good. The top two guys were Rangers, which uh of course really, uh, brings us back to A. J. Peller. Right. Um there's another uh Rangers guy named Johan Mendez, uh who's who's pretty pretty well. There was a Mondesi. Raul? Uh definitely Raul, but whether it was Raul <laughs> Jr. or just or Adalberto. Yeah, Adalbert it was Adalberto, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um and then we, we um but we drifted briefly into the darkness because I asked him about a Mariner's prospect. I essentially said, do you know who this guy is still? Because I, I figure, like, Eric like breadth of knowledge is a good proxy for is a guy relevant or not. Yeah,
1: right. If Eric hasn't heard of him, he stinks.
0: Yeah, and, in, yeah. you know, and he's, he's also familiar with guys who do stink, too. That's <laughs>
1: true.
0: <laughs> I, said, uh, I, said, I said, signed by the Mariners, Victor Sanchez. Oh, yeah,
1: Victor Sanchez.
0: And he said, uh, no, I don't know. Uh, and then uh, I looked it up actually just while Eric was talking about something. And it's because, it's because Victor Sanchez is dead.
1: <laughs> yeah, he died last year. I oh,
0: it's terrible. Yeah. You do not like to hear about that. You know, it, yeah. it's one of those things too. I do, you know, I have no reason to have a particularly strong connection to Victor Sanchez, but it was, that was terrible.
1: Yeah, do you well, know how he died?
0: I think he got hit in the head with a how rudder.
1: It? Yeah, he was, uh, <laughs> swimming and he got killed by a boat.
0: Yeah, I know. And I know the reason you're, Giggling a little bit is the I'm not, same. Name. I'm not
1: giggling. No, 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 am, no, no. I'm no. attempting to uh, not find humor in in you guys just randomly throwing out a name, only to find out like, oh, yeah, he died.
0: No, no, but well, I think well, I can tell you one reason why I giggled a little bit when it happened is just because you cause, because when you're confronted by the horrible, there's all there's just like a certain absurdity level to it where you're like that is just terrible. Yeah. And that's the only that's the only human reaction I feel like.
1: Right. Certainly, it's not uh, humorous that Victor Sanchez died. It is is, uh, somewhat humorous that you guys just like picked a name at random and then he happened to be deceased.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so that was terrible. So, all right. So we talked about digesting. So, uh, yeah. So some of those guys, we just kind of went through and would say, was a guy? Has he been? Has it been basically a success so far? Which is, is he on the same? Is he on the sort of prospect path that you would have expected? You know, given where he was. You know, given the bonus he received. Or is it a bust? And unfortunately, Sanchez is a bust. But uh, it was—I uh, think—out of the first eleven guys, seven seven successes and four busts. That's
1: so uh, not bad. I think it's I not think, bad. Uh, I bet if you went through other years, you would find a lower success rate because I have not done all the work myself to where I can like quote the exact odds. But I know talking to people in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe the expected success rate on these international signings is like in the, like below 30%. Like teams believe that if they hit like one out of 10, they're doing just fine. Right.
0: right. Okay. Yeah. And I think, and I think that's probably fair. Hey, let me ask you about another thing. Uh, Also uh, regarding this, this international free agent signing, I I uh, discussed it a bit with Long and Hagen, but my guess is that uh, while he would know the implications regarding these specific players, you might be better at articulating. The sort of, uh, the, the relevance, I guess, to policy in the league, and, and that concerns the Red Sox ban on international free agent signings. Right, uh,
1: their, uh, their punishments for, uh, signing players to package deals last year. Right, so,
0: so I'm gonna ask you just to, to sort of regurgitate what actually happened. Sure. But I will tell you that as a, as a, as a relative layman, I, I can't tell if this is, if this is horrible for the organization, or if it's just a thing that happened, I I, I really don't know where like if this is DefCon one or five.
1: Well, I don't know which scale is worse, right? Is one bad and five okay? DEF CON or DefCon five is
0: the worst, maybe.
1: Okay. While you're while you're blathering on, I'll look it up. Okay, I think Def, this is probably like a Defcon 1 or something, and that, like, they're not losing, you know, they're not having Yohan Mankata taken away from them or something. Like, this is not, uh, that kind of disaster where it's like you're losing a hugely valuable asset. Essentially what happened is the Red Sox were one of the teams who. Wait, went pause. Their-
0: Defcon 1 is, is, that means nuclear war is imminent. Okay, so Eminent. we're,
1: we're Defcon 13. But okay, alright, alright. Yeah. Not, not anywhere near nuclear war. Okay. Uh, so the Red Sox, you know, in I think the 2013-2014 season, or 2014, 2015, one of, one of those, yeah. they uh, went over their um, allotted signing pool by enough to trigger the penalties that say, for the next two years, you don't get to sign any player for more than $300,000. So you essentially load up in one signing period knowing that you're basically taking the next couple off from signing premier talents. Uh, but you think that the rewards for getting as many guys as possible in that one year are more valuable, uh, which a lot of teams have done the calculations and, and think this is actually the best strategy. So the Red Sox did that a couple years ago, uh, they triggered the penalties that said they were not allowed to sign anyone, uh, last year for more than $300,000. Uh, but in, and, you know, certainly they weren't the first team to do this, uh, but they were uh, willing to go around, the basically find a loophole, uh, or not necessarily – it's not, not a legal loophole since they just got punished for it. But <laughs> they did what a lot of other teams have done in a similar situation, which is you go to a Buscone who's a trainer uh, for these players who is often uh, representing multiple uh, uh, free agents who are going to be eligible to sign in a given period. And you say, look, we want to sign this guy, but we can't give him more than $300,000. But you've got all these other guys who aren't going to sign for anywhere near three hundred thousand dollars. So we'll take like the whole group of them. We'll buy all five of these guys for a combined one point five million. And then you can give them uh whatever money you see fit based on their relative merits. You can divide up that one point five million however you'd like. And if you want to give that kid who we you know we wanted to sign or the two kids we wanted to sign, you know, eight hundred thousand and seven hundred thousand, and then the other kids just you know, get some peanuts and a free hat. That's fine with us. Do do whatever you'd like right. and as uh, long as
0: as long as this particular dollar amount three hundred thousand is attached to each of their names.
1: Yes. so right. each player gets the maximum three hundred thousand dollars the Red Sox could sign. Uh but they don't actually those players don't actually receive it. It's uh it's the Buscone gets the total amount and he divides it up in a in a way that allows the Red Sox to pay more than they were allowed to pay for the individual player um or for the the one or two guys that they actually wanted. Uh lots of teams do this. Like this is not a Red Sox only uh sneak move. This is basically an accepted practice in Major League Baseball. The Red Sox are just the ones who got caught. And uh how they got caught is um still up for some debate, and, and it sounds like uh Major League Baseball's investigators essentially got some of the players to admit what happened, uh, which is why the Red Sox have been punished and other teams have not. Uh, but this is not something where it's like the Red Sox pioneered a new way to cheat. It, it, not every team, but a lot of teams in baseball have done this, and package deals have been very common. Uh, which is one of the reasons why teams have been willing to accept the penalties for going over the, the spending allocations. Major League Baseball clearly unhappy with how the international system has been uh, treated by the teams, and basically the flaws in the system have been wildly exposed over the last few years. Uh, and I think this is Major League Baseball attempting to wrestle back some control uh, of the process, but probably um trying to shove a genie back into a bottle uh, at this point because you know, the international market is just too... Kind of wild in order to contain, and uh, and, I, and I think as Ben Bather who's really you know been on top of the story probably more than anyone else um, has noted. Is now it throws a lot of uncertainty into other teams, is who've also done this and and have players have signed in package deals? Are they going to be taken away? Uh, Are deals that they've struck going to be voided? There's also a really perverse incentive now, where if you were one of the players in this package deal uh, and you know this occurred, you should come forward to Major League Baseball, tell on your organization, and be made a free agent. Because if you're a free agent and you're not subject to the bonus pools, you they don't take the money away from you that you originally got. So if you've got five or six hundred thousand dollars or whatever it was uh, the first time around, and then Major League Baseball finds out that you were part of a package deal and they void your contract. You get to sign for another, you know, million dollars or whatever you're worth on the open market, and you get to essentially double or maybe even triple your earnings. No, that's a good deal. Well, it's a it, good it, deal. A good deal for the player for for agreeing to involve to involve <laughs> themselves in a strategy to defraud the rules, and then telling on the uh, on their partner in, in the defrauding and benefiting from it. That's that's not a great system.
0: Was't there a point at which uh, although given the restrictions placed on the, the the players or the attempts by major league baseball and teams to uh, deflate signing bonuses, you almost you at the same time you uh, can sort of uh, sympathize with any player's uh, decision to go out and get as much money as you can at this
1: age. Yeah, I mean, so I'm not putting the blame on the players at all right? Here, right? Like the players are part of a system, that right? And they're incentivized as you. Yeah, as you it's, know it's bad for them, and it's anti-market. <laughs> and like there's all. Anytime you try and set like an arbitrary restriction on price, people are gonna try and get around that. Um, so we can't be mad at the players for trying to like, oh, the market will pay me three times what you're <laughs> what you're willing to pay me. I'm gonna do whatever it takes to get that money because that's what I'm actually worth in the open market, and it's just a silly constraint that I wasn't part of that I didn't have any negotiation uh, leverage over. Um, so we can't expect. The players just abide by these rules just because major league baseball wants them to was it was there a situation
0: was it regarding uh, carlos martinez or was it a different prospect where he signed
1: yeah and his deal was, was voided
0: yeah deal was voided because i think he had signed under false identity yeah yeah mm-hmm. and then he signed he was he was actually in the red sox system
1: for a year I believe so, yeah. And his deal got voided, and they became a free agent, and he got like two million dollars from the Cardinals uh, <laughs> after he became like a better prospect than he was before he signed. Yeah. Uh So again, yeah, he he defrauded his organization, and then did it. Uh, it worked out quite well for him financially.
0: Um, so when will the Red Sox be able to sign? Be able to spend more than three hundred thousand dollars on a prospect again?
1: Uh, so this year they've been banned from signing any prospects. So mm-hmm. like as part of the penalty, they were, all of their, uh, ability to sign international players this year was, was removed. And as, uh, Badler noted, uh, they'd already struck deals like everybody else, uh, in advance of the July 2nd deal. There were a whole bunch of prospects who basically had agreements with the Red Sox waiting to sign. Those were, uh, not allowed to be, uh, fulfilled because the Red Sox aren't allowed to sign any players. And now most teams have already allocated most of their bonus pools at this point. Um, so you have players who had agreed on, a, on an amount uh, with the Red Sox that had nothing to do with the scandal. They weren't package players. They were players expected to sign this summer um, who now can't sign with the organization that they already agreed to a deal with. Now they have to try and go negotiate another deal with a new team that they potentially haven't – uh, developed a relationship with uh, after a time in which those teams have already spent most of their money. So uh, players who are uh, have, who have nothing to do with uh, kind of this issue are now being hurt by the the decision to not allow the Red Sox to sign any players this summer. And I believe the Red Sox penalty will expire next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so assuming an international draft isn't set up in time for next summer, which it seems logistically impossible, even if it is in the next CBA, um, the Red Sox will theoretically be allowed to go back to signing players uh, at reasonable rates without uh, trying to skirt around the rules next year.
0: So in terms of being caught, the, it seems like more of a timing issue for the Red Sox than anything else. Yeah, it, what you're suggesting, if I'm hearing you correctly, is that uh, the league decided that essentially knowledge of these sorts of agreements was so widespread what was what was widespread um that you know the, any number of teams could be participating in them uh, the red sox for whatever reason happened to uh to be the victims i mean not to say that they're very much victims but they're the ones who got chosen essentially in this uh, sort of investigation
1: yeah i would look at it like you know a police officer pulling someone over for speeding on the highway right like 95 percent of drivers are speeding in any given day and so you could pull over all of them and be like hey you were speeding and they can feel like, yeah, but look at all those other people who were speeding that you didn't pull over. Why did you choose me? And then the officer could respond like, you know, I can't pull everyone over, but I, uh, you were speeding, and therefore your defense of everyone who's doing it doesn't fly. You're the one who gets the ticket. So you might think it's unfair if you're the one who gets pulled over for speeding, but you were violating the rules, and uh, you kind of knew the risks going in, and if you're intentionally skirting the rules and you get caught, then you're going to get punished. And I think in the Red Sox case, they did – they violated the rules in the same way that almost everyone else in baseball does, but they got caught, and so now they're getting punished.
0: Okay. Uh, last thing about which I'll ask you before you fulfill your obligation to the program: uh, you did mention the, uh, Jonathan Lucroy is available, Milwaukee Brewers catcher. Uh, it would it would appear to make sense that the Boston, among other teams, the Boston Red Sox would be a uh, a logical landing place for him. The Red Sox are currently working with Sandy Leone and Ryan Hannigan.
1: Yeah. As not I, a great combination.
0: No, not a great combination. And uh, as you note in that in the piece that you wrote for today, um, players, t- uh, talented offensive players are actually more valuable on already talented offenses because they tend to be hitting with men on base. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a question of context. I'm wondering if you could just provide a very brief introduction to. The market, uh, prominent sellers, the players who will be sold, and then the prominent buyers. I know, for example, and let's start, if you would, with the likelihood that any one of the New York Yankees top three relievers will be dealt.
1: So I think there's a pretty high likelihood that Rolls-Chapman's gonna get moved. Uh, he's a free agent at the end of the year. The Yet Red Thought, so- or the Yankees can give him a qualifying offer. Uh, but it's not necessarily a better return than they would get if they traded him, um, given the amount of teams interested in, you know, power relievers not in in the lead up to the trade deadline. Uh Andrew Miller and Dylan Patansis, both under control for multiple years, Patansis making basically no money, Miller making nine million a year, which is a bargain for given what he is now that he's turned into, I don't know, maybe the best reliever in baseball. Um, uh, I think those two are much less likely to be traded simply because the Red Sox aren't under any kind of time pressure. They can keep both those guys and trade them this winter if they wanted to. They could keep both those guys and see how they did next year and still be able to trade them next summer if they fall out of contention again. Um, so I think Chapman's gonna go or very likely to go. Miller and Potansis much less likely to go, uh, especially if teams balk at, you know, paying the price that the Yankees are gonna demand. Um, I think the trick with this summer kind of sale season is that you've got six teams in the National League who are really, truly awful, uh, who have already sold off a lot of their interesting parts, right? So you look at, like, the Braves and Phillies, Reds and Brewers, uh, and the Padres and Rockies, and say, like, these teams aren't good, and they don't really have a lot of pieces that you'd want to go acquire, um, you could potentially look at the Braves and be like, "Well, we want Julio Teheran, but they're making uh, an argument to keep him, and he's pitching well, and he's under control through 2021, I believe." Uh, so they kind of have the Andrew Miller syndrome, where you know they don't really have to move him. Uh, the Phillies don't really have anyone of value. I guess you could trade for Jeremy Hellickson or something, but that's not going to be a, a fantastic piece. Uh, the Brewers have Luke Roy, who's going to probably uh, be one of the best players traded this summer. But besides that. They have an expensive Ryan Braun who they're probably going to have to pay down to trade. They don't have a lot of pitching available. Um, you know, the Reds have basically no pitching. They have maybe the worst pitching staff we've seen in a long time. Uh, You know, they could maybe trade a guy like Zach kozart or Jay Bruce, but these aren't, I you know, franchise trading, changing trades. Uh The Padres have, you know, not much of interest. I guess they have Melvin Upton, who they could trade, and... Uh, you know they already traded Fernando Rodney, so that might have been one of their main deals. Uh, there just aren't a lot of good players on these really terrible teams, and then you have the whole batch of other teams, kind of like the Yankees or like the White Sox uh, or the maybe they throw in the Mariners in that mix or the Pirates, who are good enough to kind of hang around wild card contention and convince themselves not to sell. Uh, so, therefore, they're going to keep the Chris Sales or the Andrew McCutcheons or the guys that you would say, man, this guy can really get a huge return. They're, those guys just aren't going to be available because they're good enough not to sell off their team but not quite good enough to contend.
0: The Angels, uh, so if you if you just sort, if you go to the site, and you merely sort by the odds of reaching the divisional series, you find a number of the teams that you just cited. For example, uh, Atlanta, Cincinnati, San Diego. These are among yeah. the worst teams. There's also the Angels who have the best player yeah. in the majors and also probably I don't think I'm exaggerating the worst uh the worst uh, minor league system?
1: Yeah, they have the worst farm system in, in baseball by a lot.
0: Yeah, so what's their cuz so they have a lot of players who would, would suggest that they're a win now team, but they're not winning now.
1: Mm. I think they have a player that suggests they're a win-now yeah. team, and then they have a bunch of guys who suggest they're an old rebuilding team, uh like the Phillies were a couple of years ago or last right. year. Um, well,
0: I should say a high, I guess high, uh
1: high, high payroll players. Yeah. old players. Yeah, they have a lot of those. So I think the Angels are in a tough spot in that they don't really have a near-term path to contention, Uh and they don't have long-term sustainable way to succeed without adding a bunch of talent to the roster. And without trading Mike Trout, it's not very clear how they're going to get from point A to point B. But they don't seem willing to trade Mike Trout for good reason. You don't want to trade, you know, the best player we've seen in 50 years. So I think they're in a bad spot.
0: They've been, you know, now, obviously they weren't, uh, they were not great last year, but they were fine. And they've had some rocky seasons in between, but they've been relevant for an awfully long time.
1: Yeah, they've been decent for, I don't know, the last 15 years. Yeah. 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 Uh, They're not going to be decent for the next 15.
0: It does not appear, Yeah. Uh, so, I don't know, has the, what, what happens typically when when one of the worst teams has one of the best players?
1: Uh, well eventually they trade him. Yeah. And I think uh, I would not be surprised if at some point in the next couple of years they just break down and say, you know, Mike Kraut's not going to resign with us for another ten years. There's no reason for him to. Uh, we-, we have an asset that's just too valuable to let walk as a free agent. We are going to make him available. And I wouldn't be surprised if that happened. You know, not next year maybe, but maybe like 2018, the Angels just kind of give up and say, we suck, and, uh, we don't want to stick my trout on a sucky team for the next, you know, decade.
0: Yeah, they've got a lot of money invested in players, and they,
1: yeah, and, uh, they're, they're they,
0: they don't have a lot of wins, yeah. That is, uh, it's too bad. I mean, it's too bad. Okay, Carson,
1: I'm, I've fulfilled my own obligation. My kid has to go to a pediatrician.
0: Oh, okay. That seems fair enough. Well, <laughs> I, thank you, Dave Cameron. Yeah, I
1: expected you to stop talking quite some time ago.
0: That's Dave Cameron. Thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. That has been uh, Managing Editor of FanGraphs Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been FanGraphs Audio.